The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 9th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and grab your Bible. Open it up to Galatians chapter 3. We are going to continue in our journey through the book of Galatians. And let me just go ahead and tell you that some of you are going to feel like you have been trapped in an infinite sermon loop. As I begin to read from Galatians 3 and begin to teach from Galatians 3, you're going to look around and go, well, wait a minute, I'm not wearing the same thing I wore last week. I feel like I went home and changed and it's a new Sunday, but yet I keep hearing the same thing over and over again. It's like you're stuck in your own version of a sanctified Groundhog's Day movie. You know, have you ever seen that movie? Bill Murray wakes up every day stuck in the same day and no matter what he does, he can't get himself out of it. It's going to feel like that for some of you if you've been with us as I begin to get going. But here's the thing. If you feel that way, you're partly right to feel that way. And when I tell you that, I don't want you to tune me out now. Just because it's going to sound very similar to something you've already heard, I don't want you to tune me out. Because if it sounds like the Apostle Paul's needle on the record is stuck in a rut and he keeps saying the same thing, it is. And it's intentional. Because the church is in Galatia to whom he's writing to, the men, the women, the, the families of those churches, had begun to fall prey to a deception that's very familiar to a deception that you and I fall prey to as well. They had begun to believe that if God was really going to receive them, if God was really going to accept them, if the affection of God towards them was going to be certain and their standing before God was going to be sure, they now, for the rest of their days, needed to supplement what God had done for them through Christ with how they perform for God through their obedience. They had begun to believe that their Christian life started, was rooted, grounded in the promise of God to them through Christ, but now the certainty of that promise coming to pass was based on their performance for God through their obedience. They had started out like you and I, hearing the good news of God's grace to them through Christ, quite literally soaked in the grace of God, believing that God had saved them by grace through confidence, through faith in His Son. They had cashed their chips in completely, banked upon the promise of God towards them through Christ. But now, they were being told and they were beginning to believe that the promise of God to us through Jesus is how we begin our life as a Christian, but the certainty of the promise, the certainty of our standing before God, the certainty of God's affection towards us was going to be based on how well we performed for God in the long run. If we were going to be confident of His love for us, if we were going to be confident of our standing before Him, we were going to have to earn it. Because of this deception, because of this shifting of confidence, the grounding, the foundation of their assurance, the, the fountain of their joy was being shifted from the promise of God to them through Christ to their performance for God in obedience. And here's the thing, before you write them off, you need to realize it's a very compelling message to believe. It's a message that you and I deal with every single day. Why? Because the human heart is hardwired to hear something. 
The human heart is hardwired because of sin to hear the message of this is what I need to do in order to get what it is I'm looking for. Tell me what I need to do and I will go do it. We're hardwired to hear the message of tell me what I need to do so that I can go get it done in order to get what it is that I want. This is what the advertising industry is banking on. This is why infomercials exist. You realize that, right? You want to look a certain way. Well, here's an hour-long product pitch to tell you what you need to do to get what it is you want. You want to have a certain level of, of fortune or wealth when you retire. Well, here's what you need to do in order to get what you want to get. Here's how you want to feel. Well, here's a product that will tell you what you need to do in order to feel the way that you want to feel. It's the common grace wisdom of tell me what I need to do so that I can go do it and get what I want that keep Oprah and Dr. Phil in business. Our heart is hardwired to hear the message of what do I need to do so that I can go and do it. We have our own version of it in the church. One theologian calls it the easy listening version of the law. Now the airwaves of the contemporary church, the bookstores of the contemporary church, the pulpits of the contemporary church are filled with an easy listening version of the same thing. Here are five things you need to do in order to know God's happy with you. Here's 15 things you need to do in order to have a victorious life here on this earth. Here's seven things you need to do in order to be confident that you're going to stand right before God. It's an easy listening version of the exact same thing. You and I wake up every single day with our hearts doubting the sincerity of God's love and affection and acceptance of us and believing to greater and lesser degrees in each one of our hearts that the certainty of those things is based on how well we perform for him that day. That's the default mode of my heart. It's the default mode of your heart. We don't wake up every day and throw our feet onto the side of the bed and jump up in the morning confident and joyous that our acceptance before God is not based at all on how well we perform for him that day. It's based solely on the promise that he's made to us through his son. It's not based on what we do, but what he's already done. That's not how you and I get out of bed. It's why, for those of you who have been engaging in the CBR reading with us, we go back in the beginning to being reminded that the psalmist says, satisfy us with your steadfast love in the morning because we wake up unsatisfied in that and doubting the fullness of God's steadfast love to us. And when we doubt the fullness of God's steadfast love to us and our confidence isn't rooted deeply in his promise to us, we easily shift into thinking that all of those things come from how well we perform for him. That's how we wake up in the morning. Paul wrote this entire letter to the churches in Galatia to deal with this reality. God's love for you, his affection towards you, his acceptance of you, it's grounded in what he has done for you alone and not in any way in what you do for him. And if it sounds like the same thing over and over again, it's because it is. It's like our own sanctified version of Groundhog's Day because we need to hear it over and over and over again. So throughout chapter three, Paul has been dealing directly with the church, talking directly to the men and the women who make up the family of God, reminding them and arguing or reasoning with them that their justification, their righteousness They're standing before God, the ground of their assurance that God not only accepts them, but that he loves them and his affection is 
for them, they're receiving the very Spirit of God into their lives and into their hearts. It's working out God's promises in them. All of that comes by the grace of God through faith in His promise, through faith in His Son, not by anything that you've ever done to earn it. And so in the first five verses of chapter 3, if you were with us, he makes that argument by showing them that this is the very way they experience God's grace in the first place. And then he moves on from verse 6 through verse 14 to argue the same thing from the Scriptures, taking them back to Father Abraham. That God's acceptance of his people, the righteousness of God's people before his eyes has always come by grace through faith. Never from anything that we could ever do to earn it. And last week, Paul began to nuance that argument. And he began to say, and we looked at it last week, that to whatever degree you or I think that our standing before God now or in eternity is due in any part to our ability to supplement what God's done for us in Jesus, that our performance, however you measure that, whatever your picture of that is, if we think that any aspect of his affection for us and our acceptance before him comes from anything we do to supplement what he's done for us in his son, we find ourselves in a dangerous, dangerous place. Because God requires a perfect, sustained, consistent obedience to his law. And if you and I are going to insist that any aspect of our acceptance before him is due in any way to our performance for him, we dig ourselves into a hole we can't get out of. We find ourselves in a situation of our own making that we can't fix. So Paul again pointed them back to the greatest of news. That the one true holy God who makes the demands of his law fulfills his law on our behalf. And he did it through the person and work of his son, Jesus. So that, again, we would be reminded that we never outgrow or outpace or move on from our need for God's grace ever. But here's where Paul's going to go. That sounds too good to be true, Paul. How can I be sure that God is really going to keep his word? Right? If I bank everything on the promise of God to me by grace through confidence in his son, I understand that's how I begin my Christian life. But if I don't bank any confidence of my acceptance before God now and forever on anything that I do for him, that's a big risk, isn't it? What if God changes his mind? What if, I, what if I haven't banked any? Wouldn't it just be smarter, Paul, for me to bank some level of my confidence on how well I perform just in case the day comes when God changes his mind? See, Paul understands something that's true of all of us. It was true of Paul. It was true of the people he was writing to. It's true of you and I. The sinful human heart has a very hard time believing in the fullness of the promise of God. Do you know Why? because we know how easy it is for us to break our own word. You know you and I know me. I know how easy it becomes for me to say one thing, to promise one thing, and to decide I'm not going to keep my word. I know how easy it is for me to justify my breaking of my own word. You know you. You know how easy it is for you. Not only that, do you know what else you know and I know? You and I both know the pain 
of someone not keeping their word to us. We know the disappointment. We know the frustration. We know the anger. We know the bitterness that begins to creep in and grow. We know how difficult it is to trust someone to keep their word. Do you know what I learned this week? If you're under the age of 45, all right, you represent in this country what sociologists call the single most unparented generation in the history of America. You know why? Because if you're under 45, well over 50%, now getting close to 60% of the marriages of your parents ended in divorce. The majority of people that would make up a room like this now under the age of 45, over half came from homes where promises weren't kept. Justifications were made. Excuses were offered. Paul knows how difficult it is for you and I to not only keep our word, but to believe that someone else would keep their word. And when he calls us to bank the entirety of our confidence, of our hope, of our assurance of acceptance before God, but of God's affection towards us solely in his word of promise to us through his son and not on what we do, that's really tough. And so it's natural for you and I to begin to shift and to begin thinking, you know, I I don't know. I don't know if he's really going to keep it. It sounds too good to be true. And we begin to drift. And this is what was happening in Galatia. Teachers had come in and said, you know what? You're right. It is the promise of God. It is the grace of God that you and I rest in and believe in as we begin our Christian life. But ultimately, it's how well we perform for God that secures the blessings. It's how well you perform today and how well you perform tomorrow that you can rest your assurance and your confidence in. This is what Paul is going to deal with this morning in verses 15 through 18. And the single thing that Paul wants God's people to understand, and he doesn't want you just to understand with your mind, he wants you to understand and believe with the fullness of your heart, is that it would be unthinkable for God to ever waver on any promise that he's made. It would be unthinkable for you and I to begin to believe that God would ever waver on the promises that he's made. Let's listen to how Paul builds this argument and and begin to see why it really matters. Verse 15, to give a human example, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So here's how Paul is going to make his argument. Paul is going to make his argument for the certainty of God's promise to help build our foundation and our assurance by giving us an illustration of what he's been saying. And for an illustration to be effective, if you're a teacher or you speak for a living, for an illustration to be effective, it has to be clear. Because if the illustration isn't clear, the impact of what you're trying to say gets lost on the people listening. So let me try to help paint the picture that Paul is talking about here that the people who would have heard this would have understood right away. When Paul talks about a man-made covenant, the word that Paul uses there is the same word they would have used back in that day that we would use today to talk about a last will and testament. All right? So when he talks about a man-made covenant, you think about a will. You think about an estate will, okay? What Paul is saying is that you know already that a will is not the same thing as a contract. When you think about a will and you think about a contract, they're two different things, right? In a contract, two different parties have to do different things in order for the promised outcome 
to be assured, right? A will is different. Just by knowing that we're talking about a will, you should think differently. A will is a promise of one party to do something, to give something freely to another. There's no terms that anyone has to meet. A will is a declaration of what one party intends to do for another. Once a will is ratified, it can't be changed. There's a point in time when a will cannot be altered. Now, we don't know exactly what system of law Paul was talking about. In Roman law, it was very similar to our current law. You could constantly change your will. In Greek law, once you wrote your will and you turned it into what they had as a public record of office, you couldn't change it. But whether he's talking about Greek law, Roman law, or even how we operate now, there comes a point in time when a will can't be changed. Do you know when that is? When the person dies. That's when a will gets ratified, regardless of what system of law you're talking about. When a will gets ratified, when the person who wrote it dies, you can't change it at all. Paul is trying to make a picture that he's going to follow through now for the rest of this argument built on this. If that's the way we operate with each other, if we make a will, a, con a covenant like this, that can't be altered or can't be changed once it's ratified, how much more so with God? If that's true of you and I, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If that's true with you and I, how much more so with God? You and I think about God's covenant. We think about God's promise, and we try to mix in his law with his promise. We make his promises conditional in our performance. But is that how God works? Friends, God means for his promises to be a covenant. You've got to see the picture of a will. It's been finalized. It's been ratified. It can't be changed. You don't earn an inheritance. You simply believe it and you receive it. An inheritance isn't a bargaining table. When you go to hear a will read and an inheritance declared, you don't sit across the table from the attorney and begin to negotiate. You don't bring anything to the table to bargain with that attorney and try to adjust what's happening. Once it's been ratified, it can't be changed. It's not a bargain, it's a promise. What Paul is appealing to is what they already know to be true. God in salvation, in justification, in righteousness, in his acceptance of you and his affection towards you. He's not bargaining with you. He's made you a promise. You and I need to stop treating God as someone like an attorney sitting across the table from us and we're trying to negotiate with him. Here's what I bring to the deal. Let me sweeten the pot somehow. I'll pray more. I'll read the Bible more. I'll go to more rallies. I'll do more good things. I'll stop yelling at people so much. Whatever it is, our righteousness standing before God, our justification, our salvation, God's affection towards us isn't a negotiation. He doesn't need anything that you and I think we bring to the table. No, we're meant to humble ourselves to believe the promise to receive the inheritance, the joy of our salvation. It would be unthinkable for you and I to begin to build our lives thinking that God could ever turn away, waver, or change his promise. Now, to make that more clear and to kind of solidify that argument even more, listen to what Paul says next, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to 
one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now that word offspring is very important in the argument that Paul is making. If you're going to understand the illustration and you're going to get the point he's trying to make and he's going to try to solidify your certainty in God's promise, you're going to need to understand this word offspring. This word offspring is what we would call a collective noun. Now, some of you are grammarians, and you know exactly what I mean when I say collective noun. But a collective noun is a noun that can be used in both the singular and the plural form without changing the word. So another example would be like the word seed, right? If I had a seed in my fingers right here, I said, this is a seed, I would use the exact same word to have a handful of it and go, I have a handful of seed. Same word, nothing changed, used in the singular form and in the plural form. Paul is trying to be very clear because it's a collective noun that he is meaning the singular form of this word. Paul is saying that the promise that God made related to someone in particular. Later, he's going to use the plural form. We'll get there, verse 29. But right now, he is saying the promise that was made related ultimately to someone in particular. The promise that God made finds its fulfillment, Paul says, in Jesus. Why does that matter? Because what Paul is after is the certainty of your heart in the promises of God. What Paul is after is helping you to keep from drifting away from certainty in the promises that God has made and begun to believe that anything in your relationship with God is built on your performance. Why does it matter that the promises were ultimately aimed to find their fulfillment in Jesus? Is God ever going to turn his back on his son? Is God going to change his promise to his son? Is God going to waver in the promise that he makes to his son? You and I can go back on our words so easily. We can find so many reasons to not do what we promised to do. We spend so much of our time trying to make ourselves feel better when people go back on their word to us. And when we begin to allow this kind of doubt to creep in when it comes to God's promise to us through his son, that's when you and I wake up thinking that our standing before God and God's affection towards us is in somehow related ultimately to how well we perform. Whatever that performance looks like to you. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's the height of foolishness to think that God would ever waver on the promise because the promise was intended to be fulfilled in his son. There's no shadow of turning with thee. All you've ever needed, his hands have provided. Great is his faithfulness to me. Why? Because his son is the offspring of the promise. His son is the one the promise was ultimately looking forward to. The fullness of all that God had promised belongs to Christ so that through Christ, in Christ and through Christ, all nations on the earth will be blessed. What Paul is saying is that it's always been true. I argued from Abraham and I'll keep saying it now. Every man, woman, or child on the face of the earth of every tribe, tongue, and nation who by the grace of God places their faith in the person and work of Jesus is the recipient in Jesus of all that God's promised. There isn't a man, woman, or child on the face of this earth who has done anything to ever deserve it. No one deserved the inheritance. There isn't a one of us that has done anything to deserve any aspect of it. Only Jesus has. 
And Paul's saying it's always been God's intention. It's always been his plan. Through the offspring, through his son, all people would be blessed. Listen to what John Stott says. Maybe he can help clear it up for you if you're confused. Stott said this has always been the nature of God's promise. It's free and it's unconditional. As we might say, there were no strings attached. There were no works to do, no laws to obey, no merit to establish, no condition to fulfill. God simply said, I will give you a seed, and to your seed I will give the land, and in your seed all the nations on the earth will be blessed. His promise was like a will, freely giving the inheritance to a future generation. And like a human will, this divine promise is unalterable. It's still in force today, for it's never been rescinded. God does not make promises in order to break them. He's never annulled or modified his will. So Paul says, this is what I mean. Let me try to explain myself, Paul says. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after the promise, it doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise of God void. God didn't give the law 430 years later so that you could think you begin your Christian life by the grace of God through faith in Christ, but now you make certain of what God's going to give you through your performance. That's what they were beginning to believe. That's what the teachers were beginning to say. That's how you and I wake up. We wake up thinking that God has rescued us and saved us by grace through faith in his son, but if we're going to get to the end and stand before him and hear, well done, it's going to be up to how well we perform. Paul said God did not give the law 430 years later in any way to annul the promise that he made. The law doesn't change the promises. The promises fulfill the law. The law is not a supplement to the promise. You don't begin your Christian life by confidence in the promise of God and then make certain of it to the end by how well you perform. If that was the case, here's the implication of the argument. If that was the case, if you start by grace through faith, your journey in the Christian life, but the certainty of you standing before God and being received is up to how well you perform, or if you start your Christian life by the grace of God through faith in Christ, and every single day your assurance, your confidence, your joy is based on how well you perform, Paul's saying if that's the case, if your justification, your righteousness, your assurance is based on your ability to please God through your performance, then it's no longer according to a promise. You get that? Does that make sense? If in any way, any of that is based on how well you perform, then it's no longer based on promise. What Paul's saying is it can't be both and. Your salvation, your justification, your righteousness, your standing before God, and in that, God's affection towards you, it's either going to be based on the promise that he has made to his people through his son, or it's going to be based on how well you perform. It can't be a blend of both. They're mutually exclusive. So again, just like last week, you and I have two options for how we're going to view and how we're going to respond to the message of salvation. How we're going to live in response to the gospel. Our assurance of our standing before God and God's affection towards us is either going to be grounded in how well we perform or in his promise. It's one or the other. So Paul says this in verse 18. 
If the inheritance comes by the law, if the fullness of the promise of God, all the promises of God come by your performance for God. Let's exchange that for that little word law. If the inheritance comes in any way by your performance for God, then it no longer comes by a promise. But, but, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul wants you to be certain of one thing, and that is simply this, that God's affection towards you is based on his promise towards you, not your performance for him. Your obedience to the law, your performance for God in no way can ever, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, buy any aspect of this inheritance for you. It cannot happen. Our inheritance from God comes by promise. This is why the illustration was so important. I want you to picture this. Think of Bill and Melinda Gates. They're still some of the wealthiest people in the world, right? I may have checked the charts lately. Still, all right. Imagine yourself to be the only son or daughter of Bill and Melinda Gates. Imagine the day to come when they pass away and you're sitting across the table from your family's attorney and that attorney is going to read to you your will and your inheritance. Just imagine that day, right? Imagine yourself sitting there. You're listening to this being read. Imagine the, the inheritance and the fortune that's coming your way and realize that you don't have to do anything to earn it. At this point, you're sitting there and you don't have to work for any of it. What someone else has already achieved is now going to be given to you. You get it? You can't earn it. Someone else has already earned everything you're about to receive. What Paul is saying here with this picture, 15 through 18, this picture that he's trying to paint, what Paul is saying is that God ratified, God executed the promise that he has made to be fulfilled in his son when his son died on the cross in our place for our sins and God raised him from the dead. God ratified, sealed the promise that he had made so that when by his grace any man, woman, or child believes upon his son, not just in his son, not just that his son was real, not just Jesus that was alive, not just Jesus was a good teacher, not just Jesus did good things, but cashes your chips in on Jesus dying in your place for your sin to make you right before God now and forever. When any man, woman, or child on the face of the earth does this by the grace of God, everything that Jesus earned becomes yours. That's the inheritance. And here's what I loved as I thought about it this week. What that means is that every single Sunday, when God graciously wakes us up, we get out of bed and we, we come together, and someone stands up here and, and reads from God's word, and, and by the grace of God, to the best of our ability, we try to faithfully preach the good news of the gospel. In some sense, whoever's up here teaching is kind of like that attorney sitting on the other side of the table reading you the will. This is what's coming to you. You can't earn it. It's not a paycheck. There's nothing that you can do to deserve it. Here is what has been accomplished for you and coming to you freely 
by grace. And do you know what you have to do? You have to sit there. You have to listen. You have to simply believe it and then receive it. And then you go enjoy it. Can you imagine being that son or daughter of Bill and Melinda Gates sitting there across from the attorney, hearing your inheritance read to you and looking at that attorney in the eye and going, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go back out here and keep making coffee at Starbucks because I think I need to earn all that they're going to give me. Maybe one day I'll prove myself worthy of all of that. No, you sit there, you listen, you receive it, and you go enjoy it, and you go live in it. It has been earned for you and freely given to you. Paul is, listen to what Paul said, how foolish. Chapter 3, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, having by the grace of God believed in the promise that he had made to you through his Son, Nothing in your hands do you bring simply to his son, to his cross. Did you cling? You started it by confidence and receiving the promise. How foolish are you to think that now you've got to go secure it by your performance? This is his argument throughout the entire book. How foolish is it? It's the height of foolishness for you and I to wake up today, to wake up tomorrow, recognizing that it was by the grace of God through faith in his son, that we receive the, the, the inheritance and the blessing of salvation, that God took the curse that we deserve for our sin and put it on his son so that we could receive the inheritance that's ours in his son for you and I to wake up and go, that's how we began our journey, but it's up to me today to prove that I deserve it. It's up to me today to go perform well or I really won't know whether or not God still loves me the same way. I better go work hard today to make sure that God's still going to have affection towards me. Paul said it's the height of foolishness to begin to believe that what began by grace now continues by your performance. No, it starts by promise, it continues by promise, and one day we'll taste the fulfillment of it by God keeping his promises. Our salvation, our acceptance by God, our affection that we receive from God, it doesn't start with his promise and then depend on our performance. It's promise all the way. And it's when you and I begin to drift, when we begin to believe that lie, just like the Galatians are beginning to believe, that promise is how we begin, but performance is how we secure it. That's why you and I wake up and begin to walk through our Christian life kind of like that baby horse that's just been born. His knees are all wobbly. He's shaking everywhere. You don't know if he's going to fall down at every step. We walk through our life so insecure, so uncertain of whether or not we're doing enough, whether God's going to love us enough, whether we've done enough. What else do we need to do? It's because we've begun to believe a lie that what starts by our promise gets finished by our performance. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That is the height of foolishness. The promise of God is the fullness of the grace of God for his people today, tomorrow, and to the end of time. One writer is going to say it this way. When the Bible speaks of the grace of God, 
It's not because we caught God in a good mood. Some of you are going to relate to this. He just said, when, when you get to the Bible and you hear something like Galatians chapter 3, you hear about the grace of God to you through faith in Christ owing nothing to your performance, you begin to think you just caught God in a good mood because you turn the page, it's going to be a different God. It's now going to be about how well you perform. He said, some of us come to the Bible, we hear about the grace of God and we think it's because we caught him in a good mood or we think we see it because we talked him into it. You remember being a kid. Some of you have kids. You know what it's like. There's a point that every parent has, a breaking point, where you can badger them just enough and you'll get what you want. You know that. Parents are trying not to laugh, but you know it's true. You all have a breaking point. Your children can badger you to the point that you just finally give in. He just said some people come to the Bible and they hear about the grace of God like this in Galatians 3 and we think it's there because we just badgered God to the point that he had to break. He said that's not the case though. God's grace for the undeserving, that's us, is what he decided and wrote down and sealed with binding legal authority. It's something he's simply asking us to believe. Think about that will. It's something that God promised, decided, wrote down, and sealed with binding legal authority. Now, he's just asking us to believe it. God has gone on the record, and he's gone on the record in a way he can't take back. All that you do is accept his grace with the empty hands of faith. The formal and public record of Scripture is why Paul always loves to use the words like covenant, promise, and inheritance. He wants you to see the point. God wants you to be sure of Him. God wants you to be certain of Him. God wants you to be sure of Him and His promise not your eyes fixed on your performance. This is an enormous theme of all of Paul's letters because it's something that every single one of us is so prone to fall into. Paul's going to write Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and he's going to say this to Timothy, I am the foremost of sinners. You might say you're worse than me. No way, I know me. You're going to meet people over there in Ephesus who are going to say, they're the chief of sinners. No way. Remind them, Paul, over here, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm certain of me. But he's going to write Timothy back in a second letter. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, do you know what Paul's going to say? Not only am I certain of who I am, Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I'm certain though. I'm sure of whom I've believed in. This I know. I'm a sinner, but I'm certain in the one in whom I've believed. And what Paul wants for the churches in Galatia, what he wants for you and I now, is he wants you and I to have the same kind of certainty. That's the whole point he's trying to get across. He wants you to have the same kind of certainty and surety in God and in his promise that he has. It's unthinkable that God would ever waver on his promise. He fulfilled it in the death of his son so that by his grace, any person on the face of the earth who places their faith upon the person and work of his son can receive the fullness of the inheritance 
in Jesus. You can take that to the bank. You don't have to wake up any day from this day forward ever thinking anything about God's view of you is dependent upon your performance for him. Paul knows how crippling that kind of insecurity and that kind of uncertainty is. And he knows just how damaging and destructive it is because it leads us to look back upon ourselves and to something else to try to secure God's acceptance of us. And he won't have it. He won't have it. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And nothing you have ever done can make him love you any less and he already loves you in his son. That's the promise of God. Paul wants you to know it. He wants you to believe it. He wants you to be certain of it. Friends, this is the good news of God's grace in the gospel. As we believe it, as we receive it, we get the privilege of enjoying it and living in it. Friends, I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to have a chance to respond by reflecting on God's word by dealing with God, by by letting him deal with our hearts, and then for those who have placed their confidence in the fullness of God's promise to them through Jesus, we're going to remember that and celebrate that by receiving communion. We're going to come forward and take a piece of bread, remembering Jesus' body broken in our place for our sin, dip it in a cup of juice, remembering his blood poured out for our forgiveness, and God raising him from the dead, ratifying the promise that he made that all who believe upon him for salvation receive the fullness of his inheritance. What he earned becomes ours. We get to remember this, celebrate the certainty of it and God's faithfulness to it by receiving communion together. Then we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, we're going to be sent out from here as God's people. So let me pray for you and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to deal with God and then we're going to respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the declaration through your word of the certainty that we can have in you. God, we know how unfaithful we can be. We know how unfaithful others are. Lord, help us this morning by your spirit to see just how faithful you are. That we can take your person and your character and your promise to the bank for eternity. There is no shadow of turning with you. Everything we need, you've provided Great is your faithfulness, Lord, to me. Lord, let that be the song of our heart this morning as we come forward to respond and receive communion. Let us take communion this morning with joy, with confidence, with certainty, knowing that in your Son, you love us, you accept us. We're made right before you. We don't have to do anything at all to get you to see us that way. You see us in your Son. Lord, let that be the joy of our hearts. We ask that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.